Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. And all God's people said, Amen. Let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. From Psalm 96. O sing unto the Lord a new song, sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name, show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us pray together. Let all the earth sing a new song unto thee, O Lord, because thou hast redeemed the whole world through the blood of thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, so that we who are buried with him in his death may rejoice together with him in unbounded joy. Wherefore we say, Glory be to the Father, who is more worthy to be feared than all gods. Glory be to the Son who reigneth from the tree. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, the beauty of the holiness of God. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. Amen. Well, we come to question 22 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Let us uh, ask and answer this together. Question 22 asks, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her yet without sin. Having confessed in question 21 that the Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, We come now to elaborate on how it is that he became man. How did the Son of God become incarnate, and in what ways is he like us and unlike us? In answer to the former, how did the Son of God become incarnate, Holy Scripture makes us to say that Christ was conceived by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary. Unlike every other human being, the Lord Jesus did not have Adam for his natural father. But instead, he had God as his natural father and Joseph as his adopted father. For us, for us, it is the opposite. We have a sinful, natural human father who begets us. And God only becomes our true father by adoption. Already we can see how the incarnation of Christ is what will bring about and effect our salvation. In what other ways is Christ like us or unlike us? Well, he is like us in that he is fully man. The Son of God has a complete human nature, which includes a true body and a reasonable soul. 
What is man? He is a rational animal. And the Lord Jesus took on that human nature and continues to be fully human and shall be forever. This is a staggering and shocking truth that of all the creatures and created natures that God gives existence to, he chose a human nature to forever join to himself. God chose us. He did not join to himself an angelic nature, nor the nature of a dog or a lion. He chose to become man so that man might be saved. This means Jesus knows what it is like to cry and sweat and feel hunger and pain. In Christ, the God who cannot change, the God who cannot suffer, takes on human flesh so that he can suffer and even die for you. God did this so that you would know just how desperately close and intimate God wants to be with you. He has taken on your very nature so that you could know him more fully. Now, there are some important ways in which Christ is not like us, and one of those ways is described in Hebrews 4.15, which says, He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. The Lord Jesus endured external temptation. He was assaulted by demons, tempted by the devil. He was offered the easy way out. And yet Christ resisted temptation to the point of shedding his own blood. His eyes were firmly fixed upon the glory of God. His soul beheld even from the womb that beatific vision to which we all aspire. And therefore Christ was morally perfect from beginning to end, like us in all respects as having a real human nature and unlike us, and that he remained without sin." One day, we also shall possess that same sinless perfection when we are resurrected in glory. And until that day, we run hard to attain it. To contemplate this truth should remind us of our need to confess our sins. So as you are able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name. And amen. Amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. But we are risen and stand upright. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's covenant church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. Our sermon text this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 24. These are the words of God. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. And unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But, but and if she depart... Let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. 
A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk. And so ordain I in all churches. Is any man called, being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is any called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. But the keeping of the commandments of God. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it. But if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. For he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's freeman. Likewise also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your patience with our slowness to understand. We thank you all the more for your mercy in forgiving us when we disobey what we do understand. And now as we consider these difficult doctrines of divorce and remarriage, we ask for your divine light to give us understanding, and we ask for your holy love to move us to obedience. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, and amen. Amen. Well, last week we studied Jesus' teaching on adultery and divorce, and because divorce is so common in our society, I wanted to dedicate a second sermon to this topic and address uh, some of the common questions that arise in the aftermath of adultery and divorce. There are two questions I want to answer in this sermon that flow from Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, and they are number one. What is a Christian to do when their spouse divorces them? And secondly, under what conditions is a Christian allowed to remarry? So what do you do when your spouse divorces you? Under what conditions can you, a Christian, remarry? Uh, Before we answer these difficult questions, we need to review and remind ourselves uh, what marriage is and what divorce is. Uh, There are people who don't know what those things are. So let's just briefly define our terms according to Holy Scripture. So what is marriage? According to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19 and Mark 10, we can say that a lawful marriage is a divinely instituted one flesh union between one man and one woman for life. I'll say that again. A lawful marriage is a divinely instituted one flesh union between one man and one woman for life. For life. This is what Jesus says in Mark 10, 6 to 9, which we looked at last week. Jesus says, But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. So then they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. So a lawful marriage is God, it's a work of God, joining together one man and one woman into a lifelong covenantal bond. And this marital covenant is the analogy that God uses for his special relationship to his people in both Old and New Testaments. We heard samples of that in uh, the scripture reading earlier. 
We find elsewhere in Scripture what the duties of marriage are and who can lawfully swear those marital vows. But for our intents and purposes, we'll just set those questions aside since that is a whole sermon series in itself. For our purposes, what we need to know is what constitutes a biblically lawful marriage. And then you can just know anything that deviates from that pattern falls into other various categories, such as either being an improper marriage, an unlawful marriage, or an adulterous marriage. I should add another complication. Uh, This is further complicated by the fact that there are different civil laws that govern and define marriage, depending on where and when you live. And so uh, when you're sorting through the baggage of maybe your own situation or your parents' situation or your grandparents' situation, uh, you do also have to factor this in as well. So, uh, you know, some places have common law marriage. Uh, Other places do not. So that's a whole other layer, and we're going to, we don't have time to also address the governmental factor there. But that is something you have to take into account as you're sorting through this. Uh, There's another important distinction I need to make up front here. And that is between what constitutes a biblically lawful marriage for unbelievers versus a lawful marriage for Christians. So marriage is a creational ordinance, not an exclusively Christian institution. And therefore, an unbeliever can lawfully and truly marry another unbeliever. And when two unbelievers marry, God really unites them and the two become one flesh. So there's nothing inherently adulterous or uh, Christian about two unbelievers marrying. It's real, it's real marriage, even if they're not believers. Christians, on the other hand, are only allowed to marry in the Lord, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.39. And therefore, it would be unlawful for you to marry outside the Lord, that is, to marry an unbeliever. As Christians, we have this additional regulation. Now, if you were to go and marry an unbeliever, that's still a real marriage, but it's just a biblically unlawful one. So we'll get more into this as we go on. When Christians disobey in this regard, when they marry an unbeliever, it creates all kinds of very serious problems. Because although sinful and contrary to God's law, to marry an unbeliever is still to really marry. Intermarriage with unbelievers is forbidden because it is joining together in a one flesh union what ought not be united. Scripture gives us numerous cautionary tales to warn us of intermarrying with unbelievers. You can find this in Deuteronomy 7, Ezra 9 and 10. You have the example of Solomon and his hundreds of wives, etc. So for Christians, a marriage is only biblically lawful when we marry a fellow brother or sister in Christ. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6:14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness? So, to summarize, what is marriage? Marriage is marriage is a divinely instituted one flesh union between one man and one woman for life. So, if that is marriage, what then is divorce? Well, divorce is the dissolution of the marriage covenant and that one flesh union that God has instituted. Divorce, we could say, is a kind of covenantal death. Divorce is covenantal death. Furthermore, divorces can also be either lawful or unlawful, depending upon the grounds for which the divorce was sued out. According to Jesus' words in Matthew 19.9, there is only one lawful ground for divorce— 
and that is fornication, or in Greek, this is porneia. And in this context, fornication or porneia is any sexual sin that actually breaks the one flesh union by being physically joined to another. So this would include the crimes of adultery, homosexuality, incest, bestiality, etc. And I should flag here, this does not mean, when Jesus talks about committing adultery of the heart or in your mind, that's not the same thing as actual real adultery. So having a adulterous thought is not the same, is not grounds for uh, divorce. Matthew 19.9 says, this is, this is the, the proof text, Jesus says, I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. So all other divorces that do not have fornication as their grounds is considered an unlawful and adulterous divorce. And that goes for believers and unbelievers alike. All right, with all that kind of fresh in our mind, let us proceed to answer our first question. So what's a Christian to do when their spouse divorces them? To answer this, we must consider our text of 1 Corinthians 7. And in our passage, you'll see that Paul addresses a number of different categories or situations. So uh, in verses 8 and 9, he addresses the unmarried and widows. In verses 10 and 11, he addresses the believer who is married to another believer. And then in verses 12 to 24, that long section, he's addressing the believer who's married to an unbeliever. So in this chapter, uh, we have instructions, right? Divinely inspired instructions for just about any situation that a believer might find themselves in. The trick is trying to figure out how to apply these things to your specific situation or whatever situation you're in. So what is a Christian to do when their spouse divorces them? Let's consider this under two different scenarios. First, when a believer is divorced by a fellow believer, we'll call this scenario A. And then second, when a believer is divorced by an unbeliever, we'll call that scenario B. So in verses 10 and 11, Paul addresses this first scenario. He says, And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. First, we should note that when Paul says that this is something I command, yet not I, but the Lord, he is emphasizing that what he commands here is nothing else than what the Lord Jesus taught in the Gospels. So everything here in verses 10 and 11 should not be news or new to you. It's just applying what we already heard from Jesus in Mark 10 and other places in the Gospels. So what does the Lord Jesus command in the Gospels? Well, first, the Lord Jesus commands that believers must not divorce one another. The one exception being when fornication has occurred. And even then, divorce is just merely permitted. It is not required nor even encouraged. Paul says, let not the wife depart from her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. And I should note here that, that uh, if your translation has something like, let not a wife separate from her husband, uh, that word for separate or depart, it's not talking about um, our modern concept of a legal separation that is distinct from divorce. Uh, separation in this context is itself a divorce. So that's the first command. Believers are not to divorce one another, with the one exception being that it is permitted on the grounds of fornication. However, God knows that Christians are going to disobey this command, 
and that there will be unlawful divorces amongst believers. Did you know that people do this? And so he tells us what is required when that happens, when a believer is unlawfully divorced by another believer. It says in verse 11, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. So in the event that a believer unlawfully divorces another believer, they didn't listen to the elders, they didn't listen to Jesus, they're, they're in that kind of situation, they go and get a divorce, both husband and wife are now under a requirement from God to remain in that state of being unmarried or they can be reconciled to one another. Those are your only two options. Neither party is free to remarry someone else because that would be to commit adultery. And Jesus says this in a bunch of other places, Matthew 5, Luke 16, etc. So although they are really divorced, and you should not say things like they're still married in God's eyes, because they're not, they're, it's a true divorce. But because the grounds of the divorce were biblically unlawful, believers are duty-bound to remain unmarried or be reconciled to one another. Those, I say again, are the only two options. The duty of the offending spouse is to confess, repent, and seek reconciliation, assuming there's only one offending spouse. Often, it's two. Uh, The duty of the offended spouse, whoever identifies as the offended spouse, is to forgive and go through the reconciliation process. As Paul will say later in verse 15, God hath called us to peace. So to summarize, when an unlawful divorce occurs between believers, both husband and wife are required to remain unmarried or seek reconciliation. Anything else is adultery. Now, what if you are a believer and your spouse unlawfully divorces you and refuses to repent? They're unwilling to be reconciled. What then? Well, this is where the church must be involved and discipline the unrepentant person. And in a godly society, so also would the civil magistrate. In in, uh, the times of the Reformation, uh, the magistrate would often require a husband to no, you have to go back and be reconciled to your wife. Uh, We don't live in in such times now. But in, in an ideal situation, that discipline from the church and the civil magistrate would bring about one of two outcomes. Either the person repents and is restored, perhaps eventually remarried to their husband or wife. Or second, and more sadly, the person is excommunicated from the church. So they're declared an unbeliever, and then the innocent party, the believing spouse, is then actually free to remarry. What makes these situations so difficult is that many churches have no membership and have no church discipline. So an unrepentant spouse might just switch churches or hide out in a church that will never discipline them and continue to profess faith. They, they claim to be a believer. People do this. It happens all the time. And then the innocent party is now kind of stuck. Or worse, they are left to their own judgment to know, am I free to remarry or not? Or would I be committing adultery to do so? Great danger and great sin, adultery, can result from churches, pastors, elders failing to exercise discipline here. This is sadly far too frequent of an occurrence and therefore calls for great wisdom amongst the churches who do exercise discipline. As as an aside here, uh, this is one of the reasons why church membership is just commanded by God and assumed in the New Testament. Because without it, there is no real accountability. There is no way to formally adjudicate or excommunicate someone who is never actually a member of the local church. 
So in the case where believers unlawfully divorce, and then one of the parties apostatizes and is excommunicated, the innocent party is no longer bound, and they are free to remarry. Their situation, you'll notice, now falls under the rules of the next section, verses 12 to 24. So now, it's not really a divorce between a believer and a believer. It's a divorce between a believer and now an excommunicated believer, an unbeliever. So what about scenario B? When a believer is divorced by an unbeliever, what is a Christian to do? Verses 12 to 15, Paul says, But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. So Paul begins by saying that unlike verses 10 and, uh, 10 and 11, which are things the Lord Jesus commanded in the Gospels, here is a situation that Jesus never publicly addressed. So Jesus never said anything about this in the Gospels. And so Paul is speaking here with divine authority as to what God commands. This is by no means a lessening of divine authority for Paul to say, to the rest, speak I, not the Lord. He's just saying that the Lord Jesus addressed this other thing, but he did not refer this situation. That situation is that of a spiritually mixed marriage. Perhaps two unbelievers got married. One of them gets converted, but the other is still an unbeliever. Since that is now a unequal yoke, the Corinthians want to know, should the believer now divorce their unbelieving spouse? In the context here, it appears the Corinthians the Corinthians were thinking perhaps that they should get divorced for the sake of the children. They're, they're concerned about the children because their spouse is an unbeliever. As pious as such a divorce might seem to the Corinthians, Paul's answer to them is a resounding no. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. So in cases of mixed marriages, the condition is, so long as the unbeliever is willing to live with the believer in matrimony, a believer must not divorce their unbelieving spouse. Paul says further that we should not be worried about the unbelieving spouse. Uh, might, uh, we, we ought not be worried that the unbelieving spouse will make our children unclean or literally unwashed or unbaptized but that children of just one believing parent are considered holy. That is, they are included in God's covenant because God sanctifies the unbelieving spouse for the child's sake. He says, now they are holy. Moreover, he states that God might use you as the instrument by which your unbelieving spouse is saved. And there are many who can attest to God doing this in their own life, converting them through the influence of their spouse. So as long as our unbelieving spouse is, will, is willing to live with us, we are forbidden to divorce them and should rather be praying and seeking to win them by our holy, loving, and respectful conduct. And if that applies for marriages with unbelievers, uh, how much more should we be holy, loving, and respectful towards our believing spouse, right? Continuing in verse 15, 
Paul then answers our initial question about divorce when he says, But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. So if you are a believer and your unbelieving spouse is unwilling to live with you, God says, then let them divorce you. Consent to the divorce. Don't try to stop them. Don't fight it. In such cases, he says, you're no longer bound to remain unmarried or seek to be reconciled as in scenario A because they're not a believer. So those are the two scenarios Paul gives us to answer our first question. What is a Christian to do when their spouse divorces them? We proceed now to our second question, which is under what conditions is a Christian allowed to remarry? We've already touched on this a little bit, but let's walk through um, just a few possible scenarios that a Christian might find themselves in. And this is by no means an exhaustive list, uh, but I've chosen four of the more common scenarios that people find themselves in. And I'll start with the easiest scenario and proceed to the more difficult ones. I've got four scenarios here. So scenario one when our spouse has died. The easiest scenario is that in which our spouse has died. And I will speak here in the first common plural, we are, just for communication's sake. Paul addresses this in verses 8 and 9, and also in verse 39 of the same chapter. He says, I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn." The wife is bound, this is verse 39, the wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. So the principle here is that if you are an older widow or a widower and have the gift of sexual continence, you aren't burning with desire, then it's good to remain in that unmarried state and just give yourself wholeheartedly to serving the Lord. However, If you are a younger widow, or you're an older widow that doesn't have the gift of sexual contentment, well then the best option for you, Paul says, is to seek to be married. Find a spouse. He says in 1 Timothy 5.14, I will therefore that the younger women, or widows, marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Paul says, I want the younger women to marry, bear children, guide the house, and give no occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. So the death of a spouse frees us to be remarried only in the Lord, but we must wisely consider other factors like our own age, our stage of life, our sexual continence and desires, and also the signs of the times. In some seasons of great persecution, in some places of great persecution, such as the Corinthians were living through, Paul says in verse 26 of the same chapter that there's a present distress that they're enduring. And he thinks that in that case, marriage could be the cause of many earthly troubles, and Paul would spare them that. It's like, you know, if you're going into war, there's a time where maybe it's not the best thing for you to be engaged and be trying to start a new marriage. But he says, even then, I'm not, pu- I'm not putting you under a command to not get married. You can still get married. I'm just saying it's going to be tough for you. Whatever the case, the death of a spouse is truly the end of the marriage covenant. And believers are free to remarry a fellow believer after that. So that's scenario one. 
A second scenario that is also, uh, I think, somewhat easy to answer is when our spouse divorces us and then remarries someone else. So Christians are free to remarry when our spouse has divorced us and remarried someone else. And this rule applies whether the divorce was lawful or unlawful. It falls under the law in that case. Uh, in this case, it falls under the law of Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. And we studied that uh, last week. So I'll not read again that whole text, but just to summarize for you, Deuteronomy 24, it states that a divorced woman who who remarries another man is not allowed to remarry her first husband, even if her second husband dies. God says that is an abomination before the Lord. So once there's been a second marriage by our divorced former spouse, the Christian is free to remarry in the Lord, because at that point, any hope or obligation for reconciliation has been, has been removed, and the prohibition of Deuteronomy 24 now applies. Uh, and by the way, this is something in America that uh, we violate this command all the time, right? So there are, there are many people who are in this state, having remarried their first spouse after having um, married someone else. Okay, scenario three. When our spouse has committed adultery and we lawfully divorce them. So here things get more difficult because a lot depends upon the spiritual state of the spouse who committed adultery. Remember, in principle, a lawful divorce means a Christian is free to remarry someone else in the Lord. However, just because something is lawful or permitted does not mean that it is wise. And therefore, in these situations, the elders should provide wise counsel as to how to proceed. If there is any hope of the adulterous spouse repenting, then in most cases, it would be best to wait in that unmarried state and prayerfully pursue reconciliation, or just don't get a divorce in the first place. But if the adulterous spouse remains unrepentant or altogether untrustworthy and unsuitable to ever be a faithful husband or wife again, well then, Paul says, it's no sin to remarry someone else. But great wisdom and great prudence is needed here, and you should seek the advice of the church, of your elders. So that's scenario three. What about scenario four, our our last and uh, I think most difficult scenario? This is when our spouse has abandoned us, but still professes faith. So this is the most difficult scenario, at least of the ones we have time to cover. And that is when our spouse has either unlawfully divorced us or has simply abandoned us without a uh, legal divorce. And all the while, they're still professing to be a believer. This is akin to that scenario that we discussed earlier and which Paul addresses in verses 10 and 11, where two believers are unlawfully divorced and must remain unmarried or be reconciled. So in this case, the offended or innocent party is only allowed to remarry after an orderly process of church discipline has taken place, per Matthew 18. And then the church has declared you free to remarry. So one of the weaknesses of the church right now is that uh, you might go to 10 different churches and half of them will tell you you are free to remarry and the other half will not. Okay, Uh, So this is one of those places where it's tough to it's tough to adjudicate some of these things. And really, you know, if if you want to just do if you want to just find a church to affirm your opinion, uh, you can find it (laughs) They're They're out there. 
Um, and, and this is one of the other reasons why we as a church, we subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith, which says what we believe about marriage, divorce, adultery. So when people become members, it's not a surprise to you if we say, this, we're just doing what we agreed we would do in this situation. So we, we want people to know up front, here's how we handle uh, cases of divorce, remarriage, adultery, etc., so that they're not surprised if church discipline comes. And you can see why uh, many churches don't try to exercise discipline at all. It's just, it's complicated, right? But uh, the principle here is that if you're in that kind of situation, you are not left to your own will, to your own opinion, to declare yourself free to remarry, right? Many people have, have tried to do that, and uh, I promise you it only brings more heartache. All right, there are many other scenarios. You're welcome to, to email me or talk to me later if you have uh, a scenario I did not cover. But I'll close with this. Um, I hope you can see, if you did not already, uh, that sin always makes life complicated. Right? Sin always makes life complicated. I hope you also see that Jesus' words are true, that divorces only ever happen because of someone's hardness of heart. At the same time, we should take heart that adultery does not have to be the end of a marriage, especially amongst believers. Although fornication is a lawful ground for believers to divorce, it is by no means required and should only ever be a last resort after every effort at reconciliation has failed. And when divorce does happen, that does not mean the end of your life, the end of your happiness. We serve a God who raises the dead, who resurrects and renews dead relationships, and therefore we can trust him to be faithful even when we have been faithless. For as it says in 2 Timothy 2.13, he cannot deny himself. The story of scripture is that of God marrying a people and they commit adultery a bunch of times. Eventually, he does divorce them, but then he dies to forgive their sins. Christ died to make an adulterous and divorced people into a holy and spotless bride. And if Christ has done this for you, he can certainly work for good whatever sinful, sensu- sinful situation you are entangled in. Jesus is the only hope for our marriages, and he is the only hope for those who are divorced or widowed or unmarried. Jesus is the God of hope. As Paul says in Romans fifteen thirteen, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. To that we say, Amen and Amen. amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the graciousness of your law, that you give us laws for when we break your other laws. And we thank you that your judgments are true always. We thank you for the righteousness of Holy Scripture and how it cleanses us, how it exposes the sinfulness of our own hearts. God, we ask that you would forgive us as a nation, us as a people, us as a church for our adultery, for our unlawful marriages, for the fornications of the mind and of the body. We ask that you would make us a pure and holy people, that you would put away the blood guilt that our nation is drowning under. We ask that you would put away our sin and have mercy upon us for the sake of Christ. And amen.
How can a group of people who are so very different from one another in thousands of ways ever have unity? The answer that scripture gives is that God makes us to die in baptism, and when we are resurrected, we are given the Holy Spirit, who is the spiritual bond of unity amongst all who believe. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. God himself is the principle of unity in the church. And when God dwells in us as knowledge in us knowing him and as love in us loving him, we cannot help but find ourselves drawn and bound to everyone else who has that same love and knowledge as we. This meal is an outward sign of that spiritual reality. We eat bread and drink wine, and though broken into diverse pieces and poured into diverse little cups, we eat and drink in the same spirit, receiving into ourselves by faith the very loving and gracious presence of God. So come and be united again. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this. I remind you that God always works with us exactly where we are, mess and all, and not where we should or ought to be. God has given us in his word all that we need for life and godliness in whatever state we are in now. And so look to him and do what he commands you in the now. Receive the benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless for the pre- before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. And amen. amen. Go in peace.